This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And what's really important is that we band together, we speak with one voice. And I was like, you sure? Because I've got two kids, I don't want it to ruin your hunt. You're like, yeah, yeah, just come and home with me. Just take your time. Like I said, it would have killed a normal man, but I'm not normal, but, you know. When you said, why do you want to talk about that? To me, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, there's so many different factors that go into this decision. Enjoy it for what it is. Every moment of it. If, if, if you're only going to shoot one duck. Welcome to the Foul Front Podcast, part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Hey, Foul Front, it's Hannah from Oak Barn Beef. We're giving away a box of steaks, jerky, and more premium beef exclusively for the listeners of the Foul Front. To sign up, head over to foulfront.com and click on the Oak Barn Beef Giveaway tab to enter into this giveaway. Thanks, and we can't wait for you to try our Nebraska-raised and dry-aged premium beef. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, 
log on to midwayusa.com. All right, welcome to the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. And today I've got Sam Lundgren, um, the fishing editor over at Meat Eater, and turns out kind of an avid waterfowl hunter. Sam, how you doing? I'm doing great, Ben. How are you? Doing really good. What is going on with the weather where you're at? Oh, you know, it's actually uh, pretty balmy as far as uh, winter goes in Bozeman right now. I just walked over to our other office space in a t-shirt. So um, not exactly the uh, the snowstorm and wind that you're, you'd expect to see right now. But I'm not complaining. On a, on a scale of 1 to 10, how are the birds? Oh, man. The birds here, um, the... There's not a whole lot of ducks right now. We've been seeing a lot more geese coming in. Um, I haven't been really that tuned into it, to be completely honest, this year. Just moved to Bozeman uh, last year and have been getting out duck hunting in between a lot of big game hunting and a lot of fishing this fall. But every time I've gone, we've found them. So nothing to complain about. Awesome. Awesome. So you feel like maybe the... The ducks are gone already, passed through? Yeah, it kind of seems that way. Um, kinda, we, we had some pretty serious weather in November and saw a lot of ducks come in, and uh, they do not seem to be here anymore. But I was further out east um, in Montana the uh, a couple times this season, but especially last weekend. And there were, there were more ducks, but also felt like um, we'd already seen kind of the, the major push go through okay so uh you're just you're new to bozeman is this your second waterfowl season then or in bozeman this uh yeah i suppose so i moved here december 1st of last year to take this job um so i i didn't really get after it too hard last year uh just because i was in the middle of moving my life and starting a new job. But I have been in Montana for nine years now. I was over in uh, Missoula before that uh, on the west side, which is the Pacific Flyway. So, uh, you know, I know Montana a bit, but the the duck, you know, movements and migrations are significantly different over on the other side of the, the continental divide. Sure. And before you became the fishing editor over at Meteor, um, you were over at BHA as their um, their print editor, correct? Correct. Cool. Yeah, so I you saw give us- Backcountry Journal yeah. for five years. Nice, nice. How did you how did you get into that? Oh boy. Um, well, I you know I wanted to be a writer from a fairly young age. Basically, uh, that was the one thing in school that I was told I was good at. Uh, so I was like, well, I guess I should lean into it, lean into my strength there. Uh, I, I went to college uh, at Gonzaga University for a news journalism degree. And after that, uh, I basically realized that I didn't want to work for a newspaper. Uh, and I heard about a graduate program at the University of Montana that's more specialized kind of environmental natural resources, outdoor journalism, and reporting. Um, so I went and did that straight out of undergrad and then worked as a freelance writer and photographer for a couple of years while I was uh, also commercial fishing in Alaska. 
and then I was I, I had kind of been playing with a business plan to start a fishing and hunting magazine, and around the same time, uh, well, some some friends I told about that told Lantani, the CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, about my project, and he came to me and with an offer to basically make my magazine but you know under his header under backcountry journal and just kind of make it into something he was he was brand new there at that time bha had about 1200 members uh, and i think three or four staff members uh, so it was pretty small pretty new they didn't have a lot of money but i didn't either so i jumped at the chance to actually get paid to do this project instead of trying to get people to, you know, chip in to f- go find advertisers and find contributors. It was already sort of, sort of ready made, but still very much in its infancy. So I started, yeah. started doing it for a song basically. And then that turned into, you know, full-time job over the years. I got to watch BHA go from about a thousand members to over 30,000 well, I was there. We printed, I think we printed 1,500 copies of my first issue. And then the last issue I made, we printed 40,000 copies. So it was really, it was really a lot of fun to be able to participate in the growth of that conservation group and, uh, you know, learn the conservation industry as well as the history of the movement from one of the great minds um, or several of the great minds in that movement being Lan Tawney and um, also the conservation director there, uh, John Gale. Um, gotcha. So it was a, it was an excellent experience and I'm still a very involved member of BHA. Yeah. Oh, so two things um, out of that um, Gonzaga, I don't even know where that's at. Where, where is that? I, I know there's a basketball team. <laughs> sure, yeah. Most people know it from the basketball team. It's in Spokane, Washington. Okay. Uh, sure. It's a, it's a relatively small Jesuit, uh, university. Um, but yeah, we kind of punch above our weight when it comes to hoops. Yeah. The, the second part to that is okay. Print, right. Print, mm-hmm. uh, journalism and specifically the magazine format. What's, uh, what do you think the future looks like for that? I, I know why I will still order some magazines and it's so that they can sit on my end table as like a conversation <laughs> piece. And it's like, you know, when people come over and I, you know, I'm being polite and just being out with them, I can, I can still thumb through my magazine, but, um, you know, what, what's the future of that with, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's uh that's a, that's a great question. And one we talk about a lot and it's you know, been very much in the spotlight for the last 10 years. And, you know, I started college, uh, right after I started college was when the, you know, the whole financial system collapsed. Um, the housing bubble burst, you know, wall street went into recession and, and everything was going downhill. Newspapers and magazines at that time were dropping like flies and, you know, every professional journalist who came in and talked to any of our classes were like, run for the hills, kids, go to law school, <laughs> journalism's dead, print's dead, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your future. Uh, it was it was very depressing 
um, disheartening, but I always kind of, you know, believe that there would be, uh, some sort of market value for people who, who knew how to write and knew how to report. And I think that there was a bit of an overreaction at that time from what I've seen. Backcountry Journal grew enormously in the five years that I was there. Um, and many other magazines continue to do well. Others have faded. I think the market's, market's tougher now um, because people are able to consume media so easily at their fingertips and, you know, really curate what they want to be seeing. And, um, so it's, it's hard. That's kind of your fault now, right? (laughs) It it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of stepped into a new wave of it, but at the same time, like I, you know, I love print. I'm always been a print guy. Uh, I got my start working with, I, I sold an essay that I wrote in college to gray sporting journal. And I still love that publication. I still get the Drake magazine, uh, which is probably one of my favorite magazines of all time. Uh, we've got Anthony Licata here, who was formerly, formerly the editor in chief of field and stream miles Nolte, who was at gray sporting journal, Ben O'Brien worked at Peterson's hunting, you know, Steve got his, Steve Ranella got his start writing for outside and field and stream and all sorts of magazines. So there's a lot of love for print here, print, um, you know, in the case of books is a big part of our business. Um, we have some other things in the works in this regard that I can't really say too much more about, but I don't think print is dead. Um, I know that what we do may be uh, killing it in some people's minds, but I, I don't think that's that's really our intent or that I don't think that'll happen. I think magazines are uh, an essential part of the tradition of hunting and fishing in the United States from field and stream and outdoor life and Peterson's and, you know, outside and in fishermen. And I mean, I grew up reading these things. This is how I, my mom got me to learn how to read was giving me fishing magazines at a very young age. And, um, I, I think that you can't really replace having that magazine on a coffee table or sitting next to the toilet or in the seat pocket of your truck when you don't have service or you're, you know, sitting out a snowstorm. Um, or when you don't want to so, pay the eighteen ninety nine an hour for the internet, uh, on the, <laughs> the airplanes. Yeah, exactly. I buy magazines all the time in airports. Um, because I, I think it's easier on the eyes to read than off of an LCD screen pictures, um, images are in colors and then are just more vibrant, uh, more sharp when they're printed than than when they're on on a screen and and there's just so much more depth when you print something too so it's a different experience than what we're providing with meat eater you know we want we want to want to reach people where they are and and help when when people have a question about how to butcher a deer or catch a fish we want to be the resource that they turn to and in a very you know, handy fashion on the internet with, you know, videos and diagrams and written works. But at the same time, I think, you know, the sportsmen of this country have a great deal of fondness 
for print magazines. And I still subscribe to several and I would encourage other people to do so too, because it's a, it's a different experience. And, and I find that it's very comforting and valuable still in this digital era. You, you shot a whole mess of ducks or geese, excuse me, uh, last weekend. And I think your story was absolutely filled with you doing stuff in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, what was, uh, what was going on with that hunt? You know, did you have, how many geese did you guys get? We got 15, which was the limit for the three of us. Uh, we did a layout block, did a layout blind, two layout blinds and one guy in a ditch with two dozen decoys in a sugar beet field. Um, my, my buddy's dad scouted it the day before, saw a couple thousand geese sitting in this field and, and knew the guy who owned it and, was able to get us in there the next morning and we just we were just fighting them out fighting them off they're coming in so hot and heavy um a bit of self I didn't really, yeah it felt like it um i hadn't really done a field hunt for geese before um i what i did a lot growing up in western washington was jump shooting and pass shooting um so it was a it was a fun experience and uh yeah, it was just hot and heavy and and wild, and then yeah, I had just an unreasonable amount of meat to deal with. So I've been well, yeah. Tell us, tell me a little bit about yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you've uh, been making because yeah, for sure. Um, my my dad stuck around for a couple of days before flying back to Seattle, and uh, on Monday he uh, processed all the geese. Uh, he he whole plucked one then called me and said, I hate plucking geese. I'm not, I'm only going to do one. And I was like, that's fine. Um, so he just breast took breasts and legs or breast thighs and hearts and livers and gizzards out of the rest. Um, and then he had to fly home, but I'm just processing the rest for us. Um, so with most of the breasts and the whole goose, I made a corning brine. It's, it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a, a pickling, uh, liquid, um, you know, to make, make a Christmas corn goose oh, for my yeah. family. And, uh, so I put most of the breasts, a couple of the legs and all the tenderloins as well as the whole goose in that. And I made a dry pastrami brine. Oh, and uh, my, my, uh, roommate also got five geese that weekend in a separate hunt. So we did all this <laughs> together. Um, nice. so we did, I think eight goose breasts in, uh, the pastrami dry brine. So we'll let, we'll continue to flip those in the fridge for a couple days and then smoke them. Um, the, with the corning, we'll just basically put the whole thing in the oven when on a low temperature when we're ready and let it kind of braise to break down. Um, and then the one I'm probably the most excited about is I took almost all of my legs and did a dry brine for those. Um, and I will end up um, cooking those in um, fat to make a confit which oh, yeah. is, um, yeah, you, you probably come across, um, I, I've never I've done never, it myself. Yeah. It's, it's a whole thing. Um, yeah. 
you got to have like it seems to be taking pot. over the yeah well i don't know that you need a stock pot necessarily the the preparation um on our website i think we have one from danielle pruitt and one from steve ranella and i think they both call for just melting fat into a baking dish and then putting those brined um legs in there and letting it letting it all kind of cook and fry but then we're kind of you know that's basically just a deep fry but where the confit comes in is because it's pure fat you you know put it in the fridge or freezer still in that fat which preserves it and continues to break it down and danielle calls it like cheater barbecue because basically you can just pull it out of the fat in your fridge or your freezer slap it on a barbecue really quick with some barbecue sauce and because it's already cooked and already broken down all that connective tissue has converted to gelatin from the slow cooking it's it's and and it's all imbued with that fat it's already basically like chicken fried almost um and yeah. just ready yeah, ready year, to go this time of year is my like one of my favorite things because I can, you know, just come home for lunch or, um, you know, if I'm here by myself, I just throw, um, you know, a breast on the, on the grill, on the Traeger real quick. And it's, it's like, you know, you don't get that in the summer because you're being very <laughs> selective with, cause you're like, Oh man, I've only got so much, but <laughs> yeah, well, I, I haven't had that, that problem for the last couple of years, but I, I love hunting waterfowl. I did it almost on a daily basis through you know, middle school and high school and a lot in college. But once I moved to Montana, I kind of set my targets on figuring out elk hunting and it took me a long time to do it. But now I've been pretty successful the last four years. So I've been kind of sure. very well stocked what's on the, it. Uh, what's the company policy on like, uh, you know, hunting in the morning or like how much time do you get? Um, you know, <laughs> lay that out because if, it seems to me like one would feed the other, but at the same time, you know, I can't, it'd be kind of funny to hear, um, you know, Steven Ranella saying, Hey, why are you late? You know, whatever, like <laughs> can't go hunting anymore or what? I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, in, it's interesting and it's, it's somewhat, it's somewhat squishy. Uh, you know, we, we definitely go hunt before work from time to time and that's absolutely encouraged, you know, what, uh, being on the editorial team, you know, our role is to create content and we can't create content without going out into the field. Um, my role though is also, you know, writing a lot and soliciting a lot of work from a lot of other freelancers. So I end up, you know, sitting at my desk eight to 10 hours a day. Um, and we have, uh, we're just doing a lot and it's a very high speed, high energy work environment. And I actually probably hunted less this year than I have in my adult life, just because I had so, I had so many big projects I was working on and I was taking whole weekends off to work on those instead of hunting. So, but, but at the same time, you know, I, I was out for a whole week deer, you know, doing my deer camp with my buddies and producing media for the company out of that. So it's, it's, it's hard to, hard to define, but we all, we all do quite a bit of getting out into the woods, but we also work, work really hard too. I feel like this, this season though, part of the reason I didn't hunt 
as much as I normally do is because I killed a bull elk on opening morning of archery season. So yeah, what, like of, 10 minutes or something, right? Uh, it was about 25. Um, 25 <laughs> yeah. And that was, <clears throat> that's the value of good scouting. Um, mostly I have to credit to my buddy, Jake, who figured out this spot, but we went in there a lot and figured out what these elk were doing and we're able to just slip in there and kill a nice bull. And, and that's kind of my big ticket item. That's usually what I spend all of my time doing. And, you know, your luck's still lucky to get one. Um, so that, with that checked off, I was able to be like, you know, kind of the, kind of the guy who was in the office and help holding things down while everybody else went and had their time in the woods and tried to get their elk. Sure. So the, uh, the trains come in on time over there at the meat eater office then, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but I mean, nobody's really harassing you for being in late. If you're, if you're out duck hunting either, everyone's just going to ask how you did and if you brought anything to eat. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Speaking of which eating duck, right? Yeah. You and me were talking a little bit about this and, uh, I, I don't, I don't get, uh, too defensive about people that say, Oh, duck tastes terrible because even uh, up until like two years ago, I was still kind of choking down um, my ducks until I figured out that, Oh, you, you cook them to medium rare um, or you slow cook them a lot. But uh, what's your, you know, what's your take on why people don't like the taste of duck? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I have to admit that I'm kind of in the same boat with you. Um, I've only, very fairly recently figured out some ways to cook duck that I really like. Um, and I have to credit a lot of that to, to Steve and other, other folks here and other, you know, people who've been involved with this organization. Um, you know, I, I, I'm the same way. I, I grew up on the West coast eating, you know, sea ducks and, you know, and dabblers, but that dabblers that were in a marine environment, um, and so, you know, the, the, you know, we, we killed a lot of, you know, shovelers, gold knives, oh, yeah. scop, uh, the occasional canvas back, pintail, and, and, but even the mallards in, in the widgeon, you know, they all have kind of a salty, kind of a fishy flavor. That's much different than the central flyway ducks we were killing last weekend. So, you know, I eat the ducks cause I like hunting the ducks, but we'd always end up, you know, brining them forever or cooking them into a stew or, you know, just not really giving them their fair shake to be completely honest. And I didn't really have an education in this. My dad's a, a lifelong hunter, loves hunting, loves eating wild game, but is not really a cook and doesn't, didn't really know anything about it. And we had some cookbooks around. I tried some stuff, but I, you know, you learn, you know, add more nuance to your cooking abilities as you, as you mature and as you have like a re like a good kitchen to work with. So, you know, all through college, it was kind of the same thing. And, but more recently I've been experimenting with, with more stuff like that. And, but, you know, I've also kind of come to realize through, you know, being more involved with the hunting industry that, you know, you and I are not alone here. And I think it's almost become an endemic problem that people don't think ducks are good, but still think they're good to hunt. 
And, you know, one example I'll give of that is one of, one of my colleagues here, you know, has gone down to some of the fancy duck clubs in Arkansas and Mississippi and stuff and, and says that, like, there's full freezers full of boneless, skinless duck breasts that people just, you know, quote unquote, forgot down there and and that it's just the amount of waste is just enormous and that people were actually like surprised that he was going to take his ducks home with huh. him and and so i feel like you know and, and and i'm sure that's that's kind of a uh you know i'm sure that's just one example but you know you do you do hear that sentiment echoed that it's like oh shit well we killed this thing now what um and and i just i think that's unfair and I think you, sh- and I, I honestly believe that you shouldn't kill something if you don't plan to eat it. Like I don't go out shooting gophers. I don't think that's doing anybody any good. And I don't derive pleasure from the simple fact of killing something. I derive pleasure from the fact of killing something that is going to provide protein to me and my family, but just, just shooting to shoot that's, that's hollow. And I think that's going to be something that, it's going to be a challenge for us as a hunting community to be completely honest because, you know, other people in this country have the same claim to this wildlife under the public trust doctrine. And I don't think they're going to, they don't, they don't look kindly upon killing for sport, although they do, you know, by and large look kindly upon killing for meat. Um, So I think people need to examine, you know, their actions if, if they're killing ducks just to, you know, toss them to the coyotes or, you know, just kind of dog treats or whatever dog treats or soak them in some stew that nobody's going to eat or, you know, embrace it and try to find out ways to cook duck that you will enjoy because when you do it right, it's fabulous. And I just, I just started doing uh, a technique. I feel like I'm kind of beginning to perfect where you kind of, you know, pluck out the breast as you would if you were breasting and then do that breast cut, but keep the skin on and then make basically continue the breast cut downward along the sternum and then cut off the leg and the wing, then continue to pluck all that off. And then you just keep that big in the mallards we killed this weekend in Eastern Montana, where had like a quarter inch of fat on their breasts oh, and being able to keep, keep that fat on the breast and the, and the leg and the wing. And what we, we did was I just seared it hot. I salt and peppered it, seared it hot on the stove. And then I threw it through that whole skip, uh, cast iron skillet in our, our smoker grill for 10 or 15 minutes at 250 to let it just, you know, cook through a little bit more. Oh, it's fabulous. We couldn't get enough of it. You ever and heard so, of high game before high game? Yeah. High game. Um, it, essentially it's what they used to do way back way back in the day oh, they would they'd hang their birds for a couple days it, yeah yeah mm-hmm, i have heard of that um have you ever have you ever tried it um you know i haven't tried it in the traditional style um but i have experimented with aging game birds and i find that the results are similar to uh to ungulates you know i i hang my deer quarters for a week typically and you you end up losing a little bit of meat toxicization but um 
it all the the meat that you do get is going to be of more rich flavor and a generally softer texture because kind of the you know the bacteria and the meat kind of breaks yes. it down broken down. um yeah. yeah so i have i can't say that i've i've done a robust scientific experiment on wa- waterfowl but i have gutted birds and let them sit in the garage um you know with good weather conditions let them sit in the garage for a week and then eating them and i found that the meat qual i it's circumstantial evidence at best, but you know, I have found right. the quality is better when you let it age a little while. But I also think there's a danger in that because it's mm-hmm. really easy to be, to forget about just some duck that you potted while you're out fishing and then you let it go a little bit too long. It's going to be absolutely worthless. And then, you know, what's the point? And you wasted that animal's life. I don't feel good about that. Uh, so, you know, I, I have a tendency to get home from a trip, be like, what did we get? Okay. We're cutting it up and putting it in the freezer right now. Well, it's fresh in our minds and we're still dirty and it's sitting right here. So I, I, I kind of have mixed emotions about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it can be easy. And uh, one thing I learned in talking with uh, Bree Van Scoter from, um, oh gosh, I can't remember what her, cooking show is called now dang it sorry Bree. um she said that like it's really important to when you're hunting to like think about the kitchen uh while you're kind of out there not not the whole thing obviously but that's one thing that i've kind of introduced into you know when i'm getting set up like okay hey like what am i going to do with this bird after i'm done like before i've even shot it um and I, i just think that helps you be a lot more deliberate instead of like well now i got these birds i gotta deal with Instead of like, okay, yep, I already had a plan. That's a that's a great point. I I don't think I've ever thought that specifically, but kind of implicitly, I have that I kill a pheasant and I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna skin this whole thing and brine it and smoke it whole and then stuff it and you know it's 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 fun to get excited about that stuff. And I think, you know, shameless plug for the meat eater cookbook, but when people flip through that, they just get so pumped and they're like, Oh shit. I haven't killed a squirrel in 20 years. (laughs) Right. But it looks really fun to make hot wings out of, out of squirrel quarters. And you know, the pretty pictures certainly help with that, but we also have very accessible, very edible, you know, highly vetted recipes in there. And it's not bullshit that people have adapted from domestic game. It's like, these are wild game recipes. This is how you really do it. And, and Steve does, you know, takes that just extremely seriously. Um, And so I've, I've found myself pursuing animals, you know, it's, it, there's almost been a reversal, you know, it used to be I pursued animals because I wanted to pursue animals, but now it's like I'll go after stuff just for the, you know, because of the meal I want to make out of it. And I, and I think that, I think that's, you know, that our, our, our crew's approach, that's our kind of our audience's approach that like, if you look, if you look at fishing and hunting from it's like essential deepest roots, it's, it's a food gathering exercise and, and why not, why not get, excited why not plan those things out and uh i think you're absolutely right what am i what am i going to do with this animal and you make a nice headshot on a duck 
when there isn't a whole bunch of aren't a whole bunch of pellets going through the thighs and breasts and like do that as a presentation thing, you know, make a feast for your friends and, and family Tr- treat that one with extra special care, gut it right then, you know, maybe let it hang. Um, there, there's just, it's, it's a, it's a richer experience because I've been hunting my whole life, but it, the food element was always tangential. You know, it's kind of, yeah, you know, after, when you're lucky enough to kill something. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, I think there's just so much more you can add to the experience. And, and I think we're also finding that people are come, the reason that people are getting into hunting now is because of food. It used to be because of family, but you know, we, 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 we continue to see the death spiral of hunting numbers. The only where the only place it's growing is people who want to know where their food is coming from. Thus, they feel that, you know, hunting is the most ethical way to do that. So now I, before actually you kind of like transitioned into a question I had for you, but before we do that, I want to know your thoughts on chili. Like it seems like what's the solution for game meat. It's in the, I think a lot of people's solution is chili. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, I love chili as much as the next guy. Um, it's, it yeah it's chili's chili's a great use um i also i th- I, I i see what you're getting at that it, it, it's kind of a it can be kind of a cop out <laughs> right um yeah. it, it's a it's a great way to disguise flavors you don't like i won't um, lie that's where a lot of my diver ducks end up uh, hey man me me I, too that that's exactly what <laughs> i was talking about earlier like i've made duck chili probably as much as any duck dish my yeah. my folks uh places on the water um, I grew up on Whidbey Island, northwest of Seattle, and so you know I could kill golden eyes and buffleheads until the cows come home every day after school, and and so and those those things are, are they can be pretty damn hard to eat to be completely it's honest. Pretty with. damn hard to clean too. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 kind of stinky, kind of greasy. There's very little meat on a lot of those divers, um, so they would often get ground into chili. So. You know, I think if, if you, I think you should, you know, you should try and, and people need to, you know, get it, their heads wrapped around the fact that it's never going to taste like chicken wild game, you know, deer is never going to be beef, but you know, the flavor of deer is good in and of itself. The flavor of duck is good in and of itself. So you should try, you know, and, and, and keep an open mind and stop using the cop out word of gamey or gaminess. Like, I think that's just, that's just cheap, you know, because it's, it's used as kind of a catch all for anything that people are like, you know, squeamish about. And I, I, I wince every time somebody uses that word, we just published an article about why we think everyone should stop using it. Yeah, um, I think I saw that. Yeah, it was really well written. One of my one of my best contributors, Ryan Sparks, wrote that for me, and I loved it. Um, but uh, you know, I think if you are, you know, you you face up to that, and you're like, yeah, scop does not taste good, but I've killed the scop. I owe it to those ducks lives and the ecosystem and my honor as a hunter to consume them. What can I do? Well, I could put them in a chili and then they'll chase like chili. And then 
you know, everybody's happy. So I'm great with it. Uh, you know, for, for that use, I love making chili. I love having it out on the boat. Um, uh, but I, I, I think, I think, you know, people, people should also, you know, try things on their own and respect wild game on its own merits. But once you've tried that, then go for it. I think that was probably, um, the most breath chili has gotten, um, on a hunting podcast in a while. <laughs> well, yeah, I have, uh, have a lot of thoughts on these, on these matters well, and we end up talking about them a lot. <laughs> what, uh, what, here's my last chili question. This is yeah, go for it. silly. Um, what goes with chili? What's the side? Cornbread. Cornbread in South from, you're from South Dakota, right? I'm from Washington. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Um, Washington, um, corn, they have cornbread that far North. Sure. Huh. I mean, that's what my mom always that. made with, with chili. Okay. I thought that She's, was, I thought my, my folks are from Indiana. Town. Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure it is. Uh, and there's, I think there's all sorts of stuff that can go with chili and it goes just fine by itself. We would, we would also do garlic bread. I suppose now that I think of it, but I just, I just love cornbread and it's so easy to make and, and I think you, it works you want to chili. expand your culinary um, boundaries. Next time you have chili, make yourself a, a thing of cinnamon rolls. Try that. Cinnamon out. rolls. Oh, I've yeah. heard of this. I've heard of this. I feel like we had this discussion. And I, I, I told somebody to go to hell when they said to put chili over cinnamon rolls. Mm-hmm. It's, You're an advocate I, for in, that, huh? Growing up in Kansas and Nebraska, I think that there was like a, a regional um, school supply distributor. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, they, if by accident or what, they started pairing, you know, chili and cinnamon roll on the same day. Um, and I, that's just what kind of what people do. And, and there's even people in Iowa that don't know what that's about. You know, and so it's, it's kind of, so that, that's, I think that's, I think that's what happened. Yeah. Well, we've got two guys on our team from South Dakota and, uh, Nebraska or Kansas, Spencer Newharth and Morgan Mason. And I think they were the ones who were talking about that. So they may have had that same interaction, but sweet with savory just seems, I don't know. I don't know it. I, I'm willing, I'm willing to try it because I love uh, both of those dishes with an abiding passion, but, um, yes. yeah, I remember hearing about this before. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, um, I will. Well, next time we're making chili in the office, we, we've got a, uh, coffee shop right next door that makes pretty darn good cinnamon roll. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to give it a, give it a try. Yeah. I, I think the best way to go about it is like, you know, take a spoon of chili, then eat the cinnamon roll or dip the cinnamon roll in the chili, you know, to clean mm-hmm. the bowl out. Oh, okay. So, okay. But, well, I, I'll keep right. an open mind. Journalism, back to it, um, and talking about hunting and and spreading the word and trying to get the message across. I think that we're all kind of on the same page with that. Um, most of us are. How how do we reach new hunters, or how do we reach those people that are? maybe given the opportunity could become a a hunter. Well, I think Netflix has proven to be a good Avenue for that. Um, I mean, obviously that's 
not really in reach for most outfits, but we bring in a lot of people to hunting who came to it from, you know, being interested. I, I like to say that we've got a cooking show on Netflix, but we go get all, all of our ingredients first. Um, and, 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 and I've, I hear, you know, almost, you know, on a weekly basis from people like, Oh, you know, my wife hates hunting shows, but she loves yours because she's likes to cook. Um, and I, I have friends who just, you know, have been like, Oh, no way you work. I, we watched that one time because we thought it was, we thought it was interesting that there'd be a you know hunting show on, on Netflix. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's all about making hunting feel accessible and feel mainstream. And, you know, while Steve does go hunt, has gone and hunted, you know, muskox on Nunavut, he also goes to Missouri to hunt squirrels or Wisconsin to shoot whitetail does just to fill freezers and help new hunters get into the sport. Um, and so I think through all through our media as, you know, as a outdoor media industry, I think we can do more to, to celebrate those pursuits that millions of Americans are able to go do. And I, I feel like, you know, some of what I saw in the generation that preceded me was there was just a lot of fly fishing in New Zealand and, you know, Marco Polo sheep in Kyrgyzstan and, and all this stuff that, you know, that 99% of even diehard hunters will never, never or anglers never will be able to do, although they might want to. And there is value in the aspirational element of that because it's great to help people dream. And, you know, that, that, that got me, you know, into all of this as a kid, but I think, you know, I think it's all about making things feel accessible and feel doable and that the barriers to entry are low because if, you know, the fact of the matter is as far as sports go, the barriers to entry for hunting are very high. It is not tennis. It is not golf. Um, There's obviously skill involved, but there's also licensing and permitting, which has become onerously complex in recent years. Like, you know, Washington. Especially waterfowl hunting. Yeah, especially waterfowl hunting because you've got the added layer of an international treaty governing it, not just the individual state which, you know, most game is managed by. So, I mean, we've got Canada, United States, and Mexico talking about what we can do with our ducks in Montana. So, yeah, yeah you're exactly right there. In Washington, it's, there, it's, it's even more complicated because there's such a strong anti-hunting sentiment throughout so much of it that you can't just can't hunt in a lot of places. You can't use firearms in some places. You can you know the the, the seasons are, are difficult the regulations are difficult um yeah, you got to be dedicated to to be a legal uh waterfowl hunter yeah you really do and uh and you and waterfowling you know to really do it right is a very large investment up front um so waders? i think yeah i mean Shaka. waders like yeah, yeah sh- and th- but then when you talk about getting a real spread 
and then like oh. the trailer to haul it, like you're talking tens of thousands of dollars a lot of times to, to like really do it big and, and like the way you see it on TV. So, you know, something we talk about and think about is, is jump shooting. Like, you know, my, my setup for hunting ducks, my whole life has been, well, not my whole life, but a majority of it has been like an $80 pair of waders from Cabela's, the hand me down 870 that my dad bought when he got out of college in like 1980 and some, you know, crappy brown coat. And, you know, I'm like 150 bucks into this and you can sneak around swamps and jump up ducks. And if, before I had a dog, I would often carry a breakdown spinning rod with me so I could cast a spoon and, and, we'll, and we'll hook get to the that duck. In a second. so you know i I think you know this all goes back to what i'm talking about for accessibility that you know people see so much hunting programming and see them driving around a thirty thousand dollar boat with five thousand dollars in decoys and a five thousand dollar dog and a five thousand dollar shotgun and and it feels out of reach we me and my buddy went out today and we took our kayaks uh, just across the river and set up on this little oxbow. Um, we'd only scouted this place from the road and um, we just had a really enjoyable time and we had a couple groups do it, uh, do it right. And we walked out of there with a couple birds each and said, Hey, let's get across this. The water's a little hairier now. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's, let's get out of here. And we just had a good time. And we, what we mentioned was it was like, I, I can't, we mentioned some sort of TV show. I'm like, well, this footage wouldn't make it on that show or whatever. <laughs> and I, I, we kind of both laughed, but I sort of thought to myself like, well, I mean, that's like a really, it's kind of a bad thing to get into when like, what's the, we all want to go shoot a limit obviously, but heck that's probably, you know, that was a good hunt today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's waterfowling especially has been far too focused on limits for far too long. And, and I think that has, has crept into the culture that you didn't have a successful day. If you didn't get a limit, if, even if you didn't get a limit, even if you got animals. And I think that, you know, I I saw somebody writing about this or read something about this last night. I think it was just some post, but you know, success should not be defined by how many animals you kill, or even if you kill animals. I mean, sure. It's a shorthand for, no, I didn't get a deer today unsuccessful, you know, but I think I, I can't think of a, a day I've ever spent of the thousands of days I've spent hunting and fishing. I can't think of a day that I'd really pin as unsuccessful because every time you go out, you're outside for one, which is a success in my mind. You always learn something. If you're paying attention, if you with somebody else, or if you're being a good outdoorsman and being observant, you're going to gain knowledge from that time. And that those, those two things alone should be success. And if you add in camaraderie with people you enjoy, then who cares? And, and I think, I think, you know, that that's the one thing that attracted me to uh, meat eater early on was that Steve was willing to make an episode where they didn't kill anything. And, and that was, that was kind of groundbreaking at the time. And I feel, and others have done it since and others had done it before, 
but you know, I think, I think it's, it's, uh, important that the rest of the world sees that most of the time you go hunting, you don't get anything or don't get as much as you'd want. And that's okay. That's how it is. That's how it's always been. And, you know, I, and I, and I tell people all the time who are getting into elk hunting, like, you know, if, if you, if you even, if you're worried about like whether or not you get an elk this season, like you're off to a bad start. You know, if, you know, every day you go out, if you come back, like kicking rocks, like, damn it, you know, I didn't, I didn't get one today. Like this sucks. Like, you're just not going to have fun out there. I spent, you know, several, I, I think the first five seasons I had in Montana, I didn't get an elk and, you know, but I just said, you know, every time I just, I learned something and I'm getting better and I'm figuring it out. And, and then the five since then I have killed elk. So I think people get too tied up in limits and success or, you know, kind of a contrived version of success. And I think that's something we're trying to do here is, is show that if you go out and go hunting and you don't kill anything, that's fine. And you can still have a good time and you can still learn from it. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a better way to measure success to go back to your previous question about kind of how we can bring people in, I think the food thing is a huge part of it. I know I've already I've already spoken to that a little bit, but um, you know, hunting media for a, a very long time was very divorced from the culinary side of things, and you know, it's in the name for us. Everybody knows that that's like that's a huge part of what we do. But I would encourage anyone else who, uh, you know, because every, and I would encourage every hunter to emphasize that, you know, not only media professionals, but every hunter I believe is an ambassador for hunting. And that's why sometimes I blow my top when I see people doing things that are disrespectful or talking about how they threw away some diver ducks or, or, or whatever it may be, because, you know, other people see that and hunting has, you know, kind of an image problem, kind of a public relations problem. Yeah. Bad PR. Because of the, yeah, it's, it's because of the Bubba's who are like, well, they can all, you know, go to hell. You know, this is a, this is a God given right. It isn't a God given right. You know, if the, if the majority of American public decided that we don't get to hunt anymore, we don't get to hunt anymore. So they have to be cool with it. And I think the best way to make them cool with it is yeah. to be like, look, this is what we're, we're making these cool, fancy dishes for, you know, and feeding our families and it's delicious and it didn't get grown on a food lot and there's no carbon footprint. There's no, I've, I've often said, um, you know, the animal rights activists and, uh, vegetarians and vegans, they're not our true threat. Um, nope it's the median. It's the everything in between the left and right of that bell curve, the big portion of the bell curve, the, uh, the real enemy of hunting and conservation and our life as we know it, um, in this capacity is apathy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point. And I think, um, that we've seen that come into play with things like Cecil the lion. I know that's kind of a, Mm. a dirty word for all, all the hunters, but you know, if somebody hasn't thought about hunting in years, has no connection to it, doesn't know anyone who hunts, 
um, and is, is just, as you said, apathetic to the idea of it, then they're like, oh, this is what hunting is. This is all over the news now. This is what hunting is. I hate hunting because that guy's a dick and he shouldn't have killed that lion. And I, that's, that's sad because I don't think, I don't feel like that's indicative that like that African style, I'm not, nothing against hunting in Africa, but some of those things are, you know, kind of run counter to our culture of hunting in America and the North American model of wildlife conservation. So I think yeah. that apathy you're talking about is dangerous because when there is something that blows up in the news, people, you know, decide where they come down on hunting because of that, even though what they're seeing has very little to do with the hunting that may go around, go on around them in the United States. Oh yeah. And I always, whenever I see, um, apathetic comments or like judging based off of those types of issues. I just, in my head, I kind of play, you know, putting a 12 pack of cupped up mallards in their face and like really like seeing <laughs> like, like that'd be for a lot of people, maybe it wouldn't do anything for them, but I don't know. Um, I've taken, I think five new hunters out this year and oh, every single time, every single time I look over at them after that first pack and they just look at me like, What? What yeah. was that? And I was yeah. like, yeah, buddy, that's, that's, that's it right there. That's what you're, that's why we're freezing out here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that look of excitement is, is just invaluable. And, oh man, so a, a bunch, a bunch of folks from work here got to go out the first time this year. And just to hear just the, just the shock of like how incredible. Cause it, it really, I mean, it's, it's primal. It's not that. I, I mean, yeah, it's exciting, but like just to have a couple, have some birds sailing down at you. Yeah. There's gotta be it, something. That's, deep it's, in it's, our, it's neat. It's, yeah. It's, it's deeper than just the visual. It's like, it's like these things are coming and I'm trying to kill them so that I can eat them there. It's a dopamine rush. Like we're hardwired to want to kill stuff because we want to eat it. Like, you know, that it's the, the evolutionary adapt adaptivity of that is very obvious to me and and just the 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 jitters you get it, it's 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 uh it's something else i mean i've been hooked on it from a very young age and i love seeing new people experience that and be like oh i get it now i i understand why people like chasing around those dumb birds it's like they're <laughs> they're loud and they're fast and and they're delicious like and and holy holy crap is it just the most exciting thing on the planet to have them come in at you whether that's a a duck or a turkey or an elk or a deer or whatever it may be like those primal emotions get awoken and I, i i i still enjoy it as as much as i did when i was starting so when are we gonna you know i'm a little uh I won't, I don't really mean this, but I'm a really, I'm a little peeved by, I had Ben O'Brien on this, this mm-hmm. summer and he teased me and said, oh yeah, there's going to be some wing shooting going on. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of duck hunting on this next episode or on this next season. I was super excited when we get in well, some more duck, you know, duck and goose action. Yeah. Um, so I think what he meant was, uh, season nine, not season eight. 
Oh, you, you guys already had that one wrapped up. Yeah, All that right. was already wrapped up, probably already wrapped up by the time you talked to him. But uh, they did go to South Dakota and do some incredible wing shooting for ducks and uh, geese too, I believe. Um, so that'll that be the episode from hunting the Anthropocene or whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I, so that'll uh, be on season nine, which is already set to air on Netflix next October. Um, but yeah, we also, uh, we've got another series. I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, but we've got another series, um, of videos that will be coming out in the next few months. Um, that are just kind of us, you know, some of the editorial team, um, going on hunting and it's more just like one hunter, one cameraman kind of things. Hmm. And, uh, there's, there's going to be some, uh, some, uh, bird hunting in that as well. So I got a question for you, you know, we're approaching uh, 60 minutes here, right? Mm-hmm. Have you, uh, you know, have you ever found yourself in a situation, um, where you've spoken to somebody for, you know, about an hour and talked this little about fishing? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I feel like we, I feel like I've worked it in. So you, yeah, yeah you, maybe. S- you snuck it in there a little bit. Um, yeah. I, the last thing that I kind of want, uh, you know, kind of go out on here was, uh, what's your, you know, what's your feeling towards the term cast and blast? Oh, just, overwhelmingly positive okay I, I don't i don't i don't think there's a phrase in the english language that gets me more excited than cast and blast okay this is one scenario i want to run you through right and i want to get your <sighs> i want to see where you fall on the um the, the who you know whose side you're going to take here some duck hunters set up on the edge of a bank right mm-hmm. and they're having great action but then you got some fishermen that are they're on the, they're on the fish and the two things you know diverge uh, as it is, uh, you know, mm. it's a, it's a one lane road and, uh, <laughs> you got traffic going in both directions. Who, uh, who are you going to give the right away that day? Probably to the duck hunters. I imagine they were set up before first light with a blind and deeks. The, I would say the fishermen likely started it, started after first light and encountered duck hunters who are sitting on decoys on the bank. And I, I have, I have come into this scenario before, but I, I, I feel like whoever is, I feel like whoever is stationary and was there first has the right of way. So anglers should, should go elsewhere because typically, I mean, if it's a, if it's a waterway, it's probably like, that's not the only spot, but where somebody has their decoy set up is kind of where they have marked their territory for the day. Um, I would always encourage people to, uh, you know, just be hospitable and pleasant and polite and deferential, um, when they're out in the woods and be like, Hey, which, you know, I'm going this way, which way are you going? Um, let's stay out of each other's way here. And, Oh, sorry. I didn't see you. We'll turn around and go fish downstream and said, um, hope you guys are getting into the ducks. You know, I, I think that's, that's the way I would approach that situation, but it's all, you know, it's all situational. And I think, uh, it's, it's important for outdoors people to, you know, know the etiquette of what they're doing. Um, and if you, if you don't know, just go ask, you know, just be like, Hey, uh, sorry, I need to, I'm trying to go 
a mile upstream. Do you mind if I walk th- past your spread here real quick and then I'll be out of your way? You know, I, I think, uh, I think feelings, you know, get hurt and tempers get raised when people just, you know, make assumptions or, you know, ass- yeah, I don't know. He's just, Oh yeah. No, everybody's an a-hole out there until they're within 10 yards. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it always it, it might, to go might, nicely, like when they work together. Yeah. And one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors, John Gearock is, uh, there's, there's two types of fishermen, assholes and the guys in your party. <laughs> and so, perfect. and I, and I think, I think we all naturally kind of feel defensive when we're out there and I get this, you know, I, it happens to me too. Like I see somebody else, I'm like, ah, I wanted to have this river all to myself. And, and, you know, it's so easy to see other headlights when you're going out to set duck decoys and be like, damn it. Yeah. yeah, We had a guy, when we were field hunting, we had this guy drive out into the field with us, with our decoys and our layout blinds and be like, I was going to hunt here yesterday. We're like, I mean, I was going to hunt here tomorrow. And we're like, what? Go for it. You know, we're, 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 we're halfway done with our limit right now. Could you, you know, get out of our way and. I'm like, what, why did you need to do that, man? Like, you know, we're, we're, we're here, you know, like we're, <laughs> you know, sorry, you know, you didn't hang up a sign on the tree coming in saying you're, you're planning to hunt it. Like, you know, yeah. lots of people have permission for this. And a lot of times it's public land. So everyone, every American has an equal right to be there. So people just need to bear that in mind and, you know, and know that when things get, when things get crowded, you know, you just need to, just kind of take a back seat sometimes and be like, Oh, well, you know, somebody got to that blind before I did. And that's my fault because I didn't get up early enough. Yeah. Um, instead of getting mad and trying to sabotage their day, like go salvage it, go set up somewhere else, go jump, shoot, go fishing. I, you know? I always thought the guys, I always thought the guys that showed up late to the marsh were, you know, just terrible hunters and jerks and all that stuff until uh, like, as I'm leaving to get up super early, my kid starts crying. Like, and, and uh, like, Oh, <laughs> my wife's like, Oh, I got it. Don't worry. And it's like, I'm, I'm halfway out the door and I'm like, no, I got to do this and, you know, help my wife out uh, with a you know, dirty diaper or whatever it is. And then I was that guy pulling up late to the marsh. <laughs> and then, so I have a completely different understanding now when I see people, I'm like, well, right. maybe he woke up late or he's hung over or, or maybe, you know, or maybe he was helping his wife change a dirty diaper or something like that. Exactly. Uh, and that goes back to a, a, just the assumptions we make and to not jump to jump to conclusions and, and look at the positives. Like I, you know, for hunting sometimes, if, if you've got the good blind, having somebody else kicking around the marsh all day, they're going to be jumping great. up ducks that yep, might come good. back around to you. And I've actually found with deer and elk hunting, you know, obviously I'd rather not see people, but I've come to realize that if you get to like a high point, you can see and like look down and see where other people are hunting. They're going to move animals for you that it's like those deer might have been sitting in that little clump of trees all day and you'd never, you'd never see them from any angle until some bozo goes walking through there and then kicks them out. Then you're like, oh, there's a good buck. And it went over there. So, you know, you, you can, you can always find the silver lining in other people out there. I don't, it's maybe it's even harder with fishing, but, um, 
you know, I, I, I tend to believe that someone who hunts and fishes is probably closer to being a friend than being an enemy. And, uh, sometimes it's hard, but you just, you just need to be polite and know that we're all out there for the same reasons and be respectful. It's a good wrap up, Sam. All right. Uh, everybody, Sam Lundgren, uh, the fishing editor over at meat eater, Sam, what do you want to leave the listeners of the foul front with? Oh, just try new ways to cook your ducks. Uh, ducks are delicious. There's a lot of great ways to cook them and, uh, don't get stuck with any wild game recipes experiment. And you're, you're just going to have a lot of fun and find new ways to enjoy the animals, but which will also lead you to want to go find new animals and new experiences and new recipes to go along with those. So that's all I got. Great. Great. All right. Foul front. Everybody have a a great rest of your week and uh, hope the weekend's good. Uh, We'll see you for our scouting report on Friday and uh, stay safe until then. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Ben. And uh, stay safe until then. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the foul front waterfowl podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast Group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great-great-grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next, or you can tell us uh, what you don't like and we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right, stay safe out there and we will see you next week. created by man don't miss wild country wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m eastern presented by primos speak the language waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment i'm will cooper host of HuntStand's make your mark podcast for even more content be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand presents on the waypoint tv channel every tuesday at 10 p.m eastern visit waypointtv.com to learn more